and welcome back to Unearth the Past, a brand new family history and genealogy podcast brought to you by me, Dr. Michaela Hume. I am beyond thrilled to say that on this week's podcast, I have got Mr. Workhouse himself, Peter Higginbottom. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Um, I'm a huge fan of yours. (laughs) No, as you well know. So so for those that don't know, uh, me and Peter filmed a show together. Mm. It must have been, what was it? couple of years ago now years ago yeah yeah Yeah, it must have been mustn't it something like that in in Shropshire yeah Yeah. so I got a call asking if I wanted to be the historian the 19th century sort of specialist on this show and um it was the Great British Dig and we were doing a workhouse in Osbestry and I remember chatting to the director on the phone and they said do you know anybody that specialises in workhouses? I was like, yes. <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like, I do. And I mentioned your name. In my head, I, I thought, you probably won't do it. He's, you know, he's like Tom Cruise in the um, <laughs> in the history world. I thought he's probably yeah, like... compared to Tom Cruise before, but thank you for that. Thank you. I thought he's probably all booked <laughs> up. Um, and then when they said you'd agree to do it, I was so happy. Um, not only because you are a fabulous historian, but also because I have all your books and I thought I could get them autographed while we were working together, um, which you know I did. And I've worked with a lot of people on DNA Journey and um, obviously a lot of people on uh, The Great British Dig and I've done Who Do You Think You Are? You and Alan Carr are the only two people that I've ever asked for a selfie with, Peter. So you are uh, definitely up there for me, my friend. Peter, can you explain to to the listeners, for those that, may not know a lot about workhouses i mean for a lot of us here in the uk and i think maybe in other parts of the world we grew up knowing about the workhouses because most of us read oliver twist yeah so that was probably for most of us our first kind of introduction to to the workhouse and what the workhouses were like but can you just explain a bit about the history of the workhouses and i suppose that that change you know in 1834 and I suppose what we think of the the Victorian workhouses and what it was like before then yeah yeah sure um well in a, in a kind of funny sort of way it, it all it goes all the way back to Henry VIII actually um uh, you know in in kind of Tudor times uh the the religious houses the monasteries and the abbeys and so on were one of the really important sources of help for you know for poor destitute people and um you know, in the 1530s, where, uh, you know, Henry VIII dissolved uh, all the religious houses in the country, uh, that removed that, that uh, you know, uh, uh, support from, from the country's poor. And, you know, as a result of that, you know, th- there was a, a huge increase in some, you know, begging, begging in the streets, you know, and, um, 
you know, sort of this, this, particularly places like London, you know, you, you couldn't move, you know, for people begging in the streets. And, and uh, as a result, uh, there was pressure to find an alternative s- solution. And over the sort of latter half of the uh, the 16th century, uh, the solution gradually emerged um, um, through various ex- legislative legis- legislative experiments uh, which really shifted the burden of helping poor onto uh, the, the parish. Uh, the local householders uh, um, actually started uh, to be charged what became the rates uh, as we knew them until not so long ago. Now that's sort of council tax. And in 1601 uh, some of this, these experiments were crystallised into the 1601 Poor Relief Act, which gave parishes a sort of legal duty uh, to support their poor and destitute uh, inhabitants. And um, initially, um, the way it worked was that uh, there were some parish officials called overseers who, who collected money uh, from all the parish inhab- uh, householders uh, based on the value of their property. So it was a kind of local property tax that funded uh, this. And most of the money in the early days was spent on handouts to people. Um, you know, it, could be, it could be actual cash or it could be food, clothing, paying for medical care and so on. Um, and to qualify uh, for this, you, you, know, you had to sort of demonstrate your, your, your poverty or destitution. Um, and um, the, the thing that um, really introduced the workhouse was the desire to distinguish the deserving poor and uh, the non-deserving poor Um, and if um, if you were able-bodied and destitute uh, then you were expected to work in return for a handout okay Um, and uh, this could be done in various ways originally uh, there were sort of non-residential kind of uh, uh, places where you could go and do a day's work and then get their hand out and so on. But gradually, um, residential institutions uh, emerged really having two functions. They housed uh, the, the, the deserving poor who couldn't get by even with the help of a handout. So, um, you know, the disabled, the elderly, the chronically sick and so on. And also they were places where the able-bodied poor could go and get free board and lodging, if you like, in return for doing work. So it was twofold, supporting the the, the, the sort of deserving poor um, uh, and places where the able-bodied uh, poor uh, could go and be housed. Um, it took a while for the kind of what we think of as the workhouse to, to sort of crystallise. Uh, it really changed in the 1720s. There was a bit of legislation called the Workhouse Test Act, was passed by Parliament, and it kind of it formalised some of the sort of uh, the regulations and, and, and options for a parish to set up a workhouse, uh, because up to that point it had all been a bit ad hoc and um, a bit woolly about how, you know, how it should operate. And in the, in the 1700s, uh, there was only a parish workhouse boom. Um, all around the country, parishes um, were starting to set up workhouses. And the impetus for that was that having a workhouse could save you money. Cool. And the theory was that if you were able-bodied and wanted a handout, uh, then going into workhouse would be, a, you know, a bit of a deterrent. Uh, so, you know, you would actually reduce the number of people claiming poor relief if you made a test of their destitution by, uh, you know, offering them the workhouse. 
um you know it, I, I take it that was with the hope and peace that it would push down the poor rate so exactly. people wouldn't have to pay yes. as much yeah, yeah. Uh, you would still you would always take care of the sort of the, you know, the helpless uh, the blameless poor but you could sort of put a break if you like on the number of what you might you might view as sort of layabouts and scroungers who were wanted sort of you know a sort of a free ride uh, from from the parish uh, by saying well the only way actually we're going to help you is offering the workhouse no handouts around here anymore uh, the only way you know we're going to help people like you is uh, a place in the workhouse where you were expected to work uh, in return for your your board and lodging um, Unfortunately, um, because this was a bit sort of fuzzy, um, the each, each each parish could operate things how it wanted, um, and uh, in some places actually workhouses were a bit lax and even attractive to people um, because the, the officials who ran them uh, so often changed every year. They had new uh, sort of overseers and so on. Um, and um, sometimes they just couldn't be bothered, actually, to, you know, they they collected the money and spent it on the workhouse, but really very kind of rigorous in, in enforcing the work uh, requirement and so on. Um, so the workhouse was really a part of a bigger system because the handouts to the, what you might call the Zerling port, carried on all through this period. A lot, a lot of parishes were still giving weekly handouts or, you know, uh, ad hoc uh, handouts to the poor. Um, and although there were a large number of parish workhouses, there was always far more money out of the poor rates spent on helping people outside the workhouse. Yeah. If you're doing family history, in fact, the thing that's going to possibly mention your ancestor more often is all the ledgers about people paying into the system and people receiving handouts of various sorts outside the workhouse. We tend to get a bit focused on the workhouse because it's, it's a concrete sort of symbol of the, of the, of the whole system. Um, but uh, you know, the reality was actually, uh, you know, things like old age pensions, you know, were, were going strong in the in the 1700s. Uh, you know, and you can find uh, in the parish records weekly lists of uh, mostly elderly widows, actually, uh, you know, and they get sort of sixpence a week or one one and six a week from the parish, uh, but in their own homes. Um, and at, in that area, there is actually generally not a lot uh, recorded or that survived uh, that was recorded about the, the parish workhouse inmates and um, you know what they did. Um, so in the 1700s, early 1800s, you're far more likely, uh, say, to find a, a, a poor connection, if you like, uh, in the in the records of the overseers uh, and the parish committee, the vestry. Uh, than in, in, in any kind of workhouse records. And they are really interesting records. If you've not checked them out, again, it is a bit of a postcode lottery as in what records are available, but they are, a, you know, they're a fascinating set of records, aren't they? The overseer's mm. records. And it, yeah. it might even be the fact that the overseer is paid for somebody's shoes. You know, you might yeah. find that your ancestor, or it might yes. be that they have, you know, they've chased a man to another parish who... Yeah you know, needs to come back and pay for his children. Um, they are a really, really interesting um, set of records. And they do mention, again, often when we think about parish records, we just think about baptisms, burials and marriages, yeah. you know, in the 18th century. But these records are, they, they do mention people by name. 
So, you know, you, yeah. you potentially would be able to find an ancestor. And it just gives you a tiny snippet, doesn't it, of what is going well, on yes, in that I, village or town yes, at the it, time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Things like Mary Smith given sixpence for gin for sitting up all yes. night with a dead body, you know, uh, that's just died. Or they're just, just, as you say, little, tiny little snippets of, you know, parish life. Uh, you read, you, know, you don't get any, any of the source really. Um, because, you know, it's the kind of stuff that was everyday life to them, but nobody thought was, you know, worth writing down. Um, you know, in the same way, you know, um, nobody that I know, uh, you know, has given a sort of detailed uh, description of the experience of going around a supermarket. You know, in a hundred years' time, people might say, "Oh, what's well, so these these things called supermarkets? What were you know, how what were they, they organized? And yeah. how were they arranged? And you know, how did you get yeah. in? And, and, and how did you? What did you? How did you pay for things? You know, it's yeah. kind of all the little fine detail. Um, mm. And of course, these days we you know we have endless, you know, we now have videos and blogs and all sorts of stuff. So you know, it might not actually be quite that difficult for the, in that situation but you know transpo- transposing it to sort of you know parish life it's just all little tiny little juicy fragments of kind of you know how life was going on so let's then pick up on on that change so obviously we've got the the 18th century mm. system of, of poor relief and as i say we've got outdoor relief and, and indoor relief predominantly i think a lot mm. of people were more outdoor relief and then as we get into the 19th century, uh, we see a real shift, don't we? We do. Um, and in fact, this, this has kind of very modern resonances, actually. It's, it's really to do with the welfare bill of the country. Um, really, at the end of the, uh, the 18th century, um, England was actually in a bit of parlous state, um, in the sort of 1790s, we had a whole series of uh, bad harvests, uh, which caused uh, problems, you know, among, amongst uh, you know, parish labourers and so on. We had the Napoleonic Wars, um, which caused uh, a, a big sort of uh, set of problems for the country. Uh, you know, um, men going off to war, uh, often not coming back and leaving widows or coming back uh, injured, disabled, and then claiming poor relief. Um, and um, so between about 1790 and 1820, um, um, the um, the cost of, of, of poor relief across the country, I think, uh, quadrupled. Um, and and uh, the people paying for this, you know, the ratepayers were starting to get, uh, you know, sort of fairly upset about this. Um, and the Corn Laws, uh, I'm, sure, which I'm sure everybody remembers from school days, in 1815 uh, pushed up the price of, of grain, you know, sort of being imported uh, from overseas. And again, that pushed up the price of feeding uh, all these poor relief claimants because you either give them literally bread or money to buy bread. Um, and eventually, uh, in the 18, early 1830s, the government decided the whole thing needed sorting out. Uh, there are also lots of reports of, um, you know, parish um, uh, poor relief being run very inefficiently or um, there was corruption going on. There's all this lots, you know, quite a lot of money sloshing through the parish coffers and there's a lot of room for sort of, you know, corruption. Um, some You get examples of things like, um, you know, um, people giving given handouts in, to, in the form of vouchers that they had to be spent at certain shops which just happened to be the brother-in-law of the, you know, the overseer, yeah. you know, kind of um, mm. 
those kind of things, you know, and um, you know, the system had to be overhauled. Uh, but it was really, you know, the welfare bill is too high and it, need, it needs it needs trimming. Uh, so in 1834, we had what was known as the Poor Law Amendment Act. And um, what that did, um, it didn't actually change too much, really. It was really just the administrative structure. Uh, that changed um you know people uh parish household householders were still going to pay for this uh new system but it was run uh on what was thought of as a more efficient scale um parishes were grouped together into uh areas called poor law unions typically 20 or 30 parishes around a market town um and um each union apparently each poor law union had a local committee um, elected by the ratepayers, uh, and each parish in the union would uh, provide typically one to, you know, ten um, uh, guardians, uh, poor law guardians on the the board of guardians committee that ran the union, uh, based on the size, the, the population of each uh, each parish. So a big parish, uh, typically the you know, the town at the centre, uh, would, would have you know maybe five or ten. Uh, guardians on the board and uh, the small parishes might just have one or two um, so that was that it was locally run but there was a central uh, body called the poor law commissioners who kind of uh, had oversaw the whole system and churned out r- rules and regulations um, but the kind of uh, underlying uh, thrust of this new system was that from this point on there would be no handouts whatsoever for able-bodied men uh, and their dependents? Uh, so there was still safe scope for handouts, uh, you know, for, for for people who were you know poor and sick uh, or widowed and and, and so on. Uh, but it was intended uh, to be a deterrent system, and the deterrence came in the form of a new flavour of workhouse. Uh, which would serve the whole union through so a big, a big workhouse and a very strictly run workhouse. Um, I say, you know, it would um, be off-putting in various ways. The food would be very plain and repetitive. Uh, there would be a requirement to work uh, if you were able-bodied in the workhouse. And um, the uh, the new big workhouse buildings uh, would uh, have an enforced system of segregation. Uh, if you went into the, the new workhouse, um, then, uh, you know, men would be in one part of the building, women in the other, uh, the elderly and the able-bodied would be separated and children uh, would be separated. Um, and uh, that was one of the things that really um, sort of people hated about the uh, the new workhouse system, um, the sort of uh, the segregation and families, as soon as they got inside the door of the place, uh, would be separated until they left. Um, I think probably to say, though, that's often the kind of uh, slight misimpression you get is people were sent to the workhouse or put in the workhouse. Uh, strictly speaking, they were offered the workhouse. Um, it's a bit like today. If you're unemployed, you're not forced to claim unemployment no. benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's there if, you, if it's there if, you know, if, if you want to claim it. But, you know, you're not you're not forced um, mm-hmm. to, 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 to apply for it. Um, so all over the country in the 1830s, these new big workhouses were, were being, you know, being put up. In some cases, old uh, existing parish buildings were converted uh, into, into into the new uh, flavour of workhouses, um, and it was a very strict uh, you know, regime. Um, I was going to say, you know, in the early years, and what was a typical 
day like? So if we had just arrived at the yeah. workhouse, Peter, how, how would that work? I take it we are, the first thing we're going to do is get our uniform as such. Uh, yeah, well, in fact, even before that, actually, um, the you didn't typically roll up at the workhouse and knock on the door. Uh, in theory, you could do that. But uh, generally, uh, you you were dealt with first by the frontline official of the system, the relieving officer, who would interview you and you know assess your circumstances and um you know actually you might potentially give you you know say okay well we give you a bit of cash to tide you over or whatever uh, if you were able-bodied um and you know um uh, he would probably say well sorry all i can offer you is the workhouse and uh, you know if, if you're happy with that i'll give you a chitty and you take your family up to the workhouse. If you had a family, you all had to stick together, was the kind of basic expectation. Um, you know, um, you, you couldn't just have the husband in the workhouse and the family outside, or if they were outside, they wouldn't get any help. Mm. Uh, so you all went in together, and you all came out together. So you, you, you would turn up at the workhouse. In fact, even that would be quite difficult. Uh, you know, if you live, you could, you could live possibly seven or eight miles from the workhouse, and there wouldn't be a bus or a train in those days uh you'd have to make your own way there even that actually could be a bit of a um you know an ordeal um so you pitch up the workhouse uh there'll be a long admission process um you you would have to you know paperwork to be done um you'd have to uh have a bath and a medical and make sure you weren't carrying anything infectious <laughs> uh, there was kind of quarant- a quarantine period yeah, and uh, smallpox was a really big uh, serious fear in those days so you spent a, you know, a little time in, uh, in quarantine and had a medical inspection. Uh, your own clothes will be taken off you and uh, either put into store or if they were too too far gone, they'd possibly be, be burned, actually. Because mm-hmm. um, like a lot of people you know, might actually be in that state. Um, and uh, then you'd go into the main workhouse, uh, you're into your separate uh, section, uh, depending on uh, you know, whether you were elderly, able-bodied, um, and so on. Um, and from that point on, it was a fairly sort of rigid routine. Um, it differed a bit whether you were able-bodied or, or sort of elderly and infirm. But able-bodied, typically you'd be up at sort of um, a six in the morning. Uh, you'd have roll call and breakfast. Uh, seven till twelve, you'd be working. Uh, an hour off for your dinner. Uh, another five hours work in the afternoons. Uh, one till six uh dinner in the uh, sort of supper in the evening and uh you've been in bed by eight o'clock um uh, some places it could be even earlier some places actually resented buying candles in the you know when it got dark so you kind of went to bed it was dark um sunday was a bit different uh sunday was a you know the day of rest um no no sort of labor required um but you had lots of sort of religious um activities provided you know it'd be, it'd be a uh, chapel service in the church service in the morning uh sunday school in the afternoon for the children another sort of service in the evening so lots of religious devotions uh were expected um of, of you um so that uh, you know that was the basic routine uh food was again a very I was say, what are, what are we eating peter because i know didn't you do a cookbook Am I right? Yeah, no, I did, actually, I, 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 got, I actually, I actually um, came into possession of an original workhouse cookbook, which mm-hmm. sounds like one of those humorous. You know, I was going to say, I couldn't imagine there was many recipes in it, but I'm <laughs> sure you're going to tell me that there is. Oh well, it was, but yeah, it's quite. I think about fifty odd recipes. Um, 
Well, in fact, um, the thing, the, the real thing to be aware of or, uh, or always consider when you're talking about the work has, is it changed over the decades? It did. It's very yeah. easy to read Colin Oliver Twist and think, oh, well, the, you know, mm. I think it was in 1920, I'm sure, you know, because that's what Charles Dickens says, you know, mm. it changed enormously. Um, and in fact, this very strict regime uh, really uh, covered really the, the, up to the 1870s. So 1830s to 1870s, you had this very, very um, strict uh, regime, which I, you know, really what um, uh, I've just described. So in that period, uh, the food was, I say, very plain. Uh, it would be uh, sort of porridge gruel uh, or bread in the you know for breakfast and for and and for supper or possibly bread and cheese um you know very fixed amounts um you know eight ounces of bread and you know um six ounces of, of, of gruel or whatever you know half a pint of gruel uh the midday dinner was the main thing that changed a bit um typically uh four or five days a week it was things like bread you know bread and broth uh or suet pudding um on a couple of days you would get meat and veg um uh, but um you know it was very stodgy um but again you always have to compare what's happening in the workhouse to what's happening outside the workhouse to the similar kind of people mm. uh if you've watched any of these you know tv series reconstructing life in victorian times uh you know that people are scraping the you know pet Hatenies and pennies together to buy, you know, a bit of bread for their family. Um, so, although the workhouse food was very plain, at least it was three meals, you know, three solid meals a day. That's what, um, yeah, that's what I was going to say. You know, I mean, life, especially in these rural towns and, and villages, well, especially yeah. when if work is agricultural, which it mostly is, it's seasonal. You know, yeah, exactly. we found that when we did our research for Oswestry. Yeah. Um, that for some people, the workhouse it meant fresh clothes, it meant food. Yeah. Um, you know, you didn't have to go out and try and try and get it. You know, yeah. it was there. Yeah. And I think it's interesting what you said about how the workhouse changed, and I, I think we found that, didn't we, with Oswestry Street mm. when we again when we did our research there that yes, there is a routine that that is yeah. followed, but. There was also provision. I remember there was like a heating system. Do you remember they tried to sort yeah. of introduce a kind of heating system? Yeah. And a band came in. Do you remember? And I think somebody came in and did a play. Um, yeah. So I think exactly what you said. And I remember us having a discussion about this because often when we think of the workhouse, we think of Oliver Twist. And it was like that in some workhouses for most of mm -hmm. the 19th century. But as you've rightly said, we do get a shift, a change. Yeah, yes. Well, I certainly, the, um, I mean, Oliver Twist, you know, um, if I remember, the, the diet in the um, Oliver Twist workhouse was gruel, gruel and gruel. And that was an, it, yeah. An onion once a week or something. <laughs> yeah. um, and in fact, there was never ever a, a real workhouse that I've ever come across that had, you know, that as the, the diet. Um, you know, and uh, if I, uh, the Oliver Twist workhouse was a parish workhouse. Mm. Uh, even though Oliver Twist was written after the new system had come into operation, it, uh, the, the story actually re reflects a, a parish workhouse. Um, but um, there were some change. One of the big changes, um, which kind of is quite significant uh, as far as family history is concerned, is to do medical care. 
Mm. Um, up until the 1860s, 70s, uh, the workhouse was probably the least attractive place in the world to get sick. Uh, every workhouse had a you know, facility called an infirmary, uh, but they're often, you know, tiny, badly ventilated, cramped, um, you know, very, very, very minimal. Um, the workhouse had a doctor, but most of the nursing was done by elderly female inmates, um, you know, who kind of volunteered or press ganged into, into doing the work. And a lot of them, um, you know, uh, were literate. They couldn't read or write, you know, certainly couldn't read a label on the bottle or read some instructions left by the medical officer. And often uh, they were drunk most of the time. Uh, you know, I'm seriously, um, they often got given a ration of beer in the morning, you know, for doing the job, you know, and, you know, kind of by, by eight o'clock in the morning, they'd be rolling around sort of, you know, uh, and sometimes... Um, let's, hope, let's hope they know the difference between arsenic yeah, and something yes. else. Uh, some of the things, a lot of the stuff that in those days that was prescribed for people in the infirmary uh, were alcohol-based, you know, mm. like brandy, for example. Yeah. Uh, the reason for that is that um, often the drugs or any drugs prescribed by the medical officer had to be paid for out of his salary. Mm. However, if you prescribed things like brandy or, you know, uh, beer, uh, to the sick, uh, that came out of the food bill rather than ah, out of his pocket. It was quite right. attractive, actually, uh, to provide <laughs> yeah. you know, alcohol-based yeah. uh, stimulants. They were often referred mm. to as, um, you know, sort of because the patients were quite happy, made them feel better, and mm. uh, you know, it didn't uh, dig into the, the the poor doc's you know uh, salary. Um, but a lot of the medical care was was very dodgy, you might say. Um, you know, uh, trained paid nurses were very, very rare until the 1860s. Uh, there was a big um, uh, sort of outcry in the 1860s in London uh, because the medical journal, The Lancet, did lots of sort of uh, on-the-spot exposés of some of the really dire conditions. Um, as a result of that, there were you know, a really big push um, to improve workhouse medical care. And that kind of filtered across the country. Um, but the thing that really changed was that uh, from the 1870s onwards, roughly, if you were sick and poor, but not so poor you needed to go into the workhouse, but you just couldn't afford a doctor, you would increasingly be re referred to the workhouse infirmary for care and treatment. So you would be in the workhouse infirmary, not because you were ultra poor, because it, it effectively become the local hospital in many cases. Uh, so my great-great-grandfather, for example, um, I know from the census that, uh, you know, not that long before uh, he died in the workhouse infirmary, you know, he was at home with his family, um, you know, apparently you know, living OK. Uh, but he died in the workhouse infirmary. I suspect, I don't know, because the records haven't survived, um, that he, he went into the workhouse infirmary very close to the end of his life because his family couldn't really care for him anymore and that was really the only option the only alternative um you know form of care that, that, that existed in those days um there were things called voluntary hospitals charity hospitals that, that they they didn't touch uh the elderly or chronic cases um you know if, if you were elderly and needed uh, elderly and poor and needed care the workhouse infirmary had effectively become the local you know, the local hospital um, or hospice almost, you might say. So a lot of people died in workhouse infirmaries. I was going to say, uh, yeah, I know my uh, 
great, great, I think great grandfather, he died in the workhouse infirmary. And I know that there's going to be people listening mm. whose relatives, ancestors have died in a workhouse infirmary. So yeah. it's interesting that you've actually brought that up and sort of clarified, I think, for most of us that, you know, that these people weren't necessarily inmates of the workhouse yeah. and they've got sick there. They were probably just ill, couldn't yeah. afford a doctor. Yeah. And therefore, like what you said, that was the local hospital for poor people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you, you might find, um, you know, that um, uh, people appear in uh, workhouse infirmary records, but not in the, the sort of the general workhouse admission records. Um, um, but yeah, so it, it, it's it's sort of it's, it may not be the sort of um, you know quite such a depressing discovery if you're in that situation as it might initially uh you know it seemed to be that you know really they were they were just making use of, of the only provision that existed uh for for, for for poorer people um in those days particularly in, in terms of end of life uh end of life care um no. but uh, just to follow yeah. on from that really that um as a result of all this extra business, if you like, the workhouse infirmary, uh, I, there was a big expansion of workhouse medical facilities, and in case lots of new buildings, and in some cases the kind of the medical provision, particularly in uh, the larger sort of town city workhouses, almost outgrew um, the, the, the care for you know for, 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 the, for the basic poor. If you look at the, the old maps of um, you know the ordnance survey maps um, of uh, workhouse sites. All the new expansion around the original workhouse is often hospital blocks. And that is really why um, eventually, um, you know, uh, workhouse infirmaries became largely hospitals. And in 1948, when the NHS was launched, a very big proportion of NHS real estate uh, was what was former workhouse mm. sites, which, which, you know, which had morphed into, in, 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 into you know, hospitals for the poor. How did the treatment of children change, Peter, over this period from like, obviously, when I know from my, with my historian's hat on, you know, if we start at the beginning of the 19th century, children are very much seen as mini, mini adults, you know, they are there yeah. to help provide and put food on the table yeah. and they're sent out yeah. to work. So how did, as you know, as we get sort of education acts introduced as the 19th mm. century progresses, how did that reflect in the treatment of children within the workhouse? Well, surprisingly, uh, children um, actually, on the whole, uh, were the, the one group that received that were treated um, more amenably um, by the system than the adults. Um, really, as early as the eighteen forties, uh, there were attempts being made to get children out of workhouses into separate accommodation. Um, so, uh, so, so, children with you know. Uh, who'd entered the workhouse system with, with their parents, um, they were increasingly housed on a separate site. Um, the, 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 the belief was that if you, if children were mixing with adult paupers, they would pick up, you know, bad habits, bad ways. They'd, they'd be tainted was the phrase that was sometimes used by being exposed, uh, to adults in workhouses. Um, so originally, uh, the 1840s uh, onwards, there were what were called district schools being set up in some places, uh, particularly in London and some of the big northern cities, Manchester, Leeds and uh, Liverpool uh, had the, the quite big schools where uh, you know, children were taken from the workhouse 
into what I suppose you would call the workhouses for children. Um, they were quite, you know, monolithic, big buildings. Uh, and the children there, you know, were, were given ed- educated. They were also uh, given what was called industrial training, uh, trying to equip them for later life. So uh, for the girls, it, it, was, it was domestic training. They were expected to end up as domestic servants. So they were taught, you know, the, the basics of, of cookery, sewing, uh, cleaning, all those kind of things. And the boys uh, were taught various sort of manual uh, crafts, you know, carpentry, tailoring, shoemaking, uh, all those kind of things. And the hope was that if, if you if you gave them those skills, when they reached 15 or whatever, uh, left the workhouse, uh, they would be employable and therefore they wouldn't turn into uh, you know, paupers like their, their parents uh, had done. Um, these these district schools, uh, which are also known as barracks schools, um, by people who who thought they were not such a good thing, um, they were um, um, succeeded in the eighteen seventies eighteen eighties by a whole new system um, inherited from from Europe actually um, called the cottage homes um, system. Uh, the idea was that uh, children, rather than being in these massive institutions, really needed to be in a, in a more family-style uh, environment. So cottage homes, villages, uh, as they, they were usually known, were literally mini villages, uh, often out, you know, in the countryside. Um, and typically, there'd be, I don't know, say a dozen or fifteen um, quotes cottages, usually quite substantial uh, houses. Uh, each of which would have, uh, you know, fifteen or twenty children living there uh, under the care of uh, uh, either a house mother or house parents, uh, usually the case with boys. Um, and uh, they would be, you know, sort of they would be, they'd have a school, uh, they'd have a, a chapel, they'd have uh, workshops, um, basically like self-contained little villages. They, you know, they'd have a bakery, a laundry, and so on. You know, and again the a lot of the work of running the place would be done by the older children. So the laundry, you know, would, would they had the girls helping there, um, and the boys, I say, would be doing the, the carpentry, shoemaking, or whatever. Um, and uh, I say that quite a few of these were set up, and uh, some some are actually still around. Actually, again, it's always interesting to go and uh, find the buildings and then wander around because uh, they were quite well constructed buildings and often now quite you know desirable residences. Um, usually they're usually set around a nice village green style um, uh, setup. Um, cottage homes in their turn started to get criticised in the 1890s as being a bit sort of never-never land. Uh, although they, they that they uh, uh, had good aims. They weren't really equipping children for real sort of life particularly city life. They weren't becoming streetwise. And um, the idea was modified, uh, starting in Sheffield, but again, spread around the country, um, of having the same style of family little groups, uh, you know, uh, 15, 20 children under the care of house parents, but in a, in a house, an ordinary house in the city suburb. So big cities, you know, like Leeds, Bradford, uh, Sheffield and so on, um, around the outskirts of the city, there were dotted uh, these scattered homes, as they were known. The children went to local schools and really mixed in. And, you know, the idea was that, you know, they would, um, you know, be better equipped uh, in, in that situation. So um, some poor law unions uh, adopted the cottage home system and some adopted you know, the scattered home system. 
some had sort of kind of hybrid systems uh, and, and so on. Uh, it varied quite a bit around the country. But uh, generally, um, the children, you know, were taken out of the the, the, hor- the horrors, if you like, of the workhouse and, uh, you know, given relatively uh, comfortable and well-educated upbringings. Again, you always have to compare it what's going on outside. So even with the 1870, you know, uh, Education Act and its successes and so on, a lot of children, uh, you know, uh, outside the workhouse were living in quite sort of, you know, a degree of poverty and uh, completely free education uh, public education, as they didn't come in until the 18, late 1880s, mm-hmm. I think, if I remember rightly. Um, so children, you know, in the workhouse system actually arguably fared reasonably well uh, compared to a lot of um, children outside. And they say really the one group that you could say had, had a, in, in, in its own way a positive outcome from their time in, in the poor relief system. Now, you've mentioned how people went into the workhouse and the process of how how people uh, got admitted into the workhouse. Mm. How did people get out then? (laughs) Uh, That's a good question. question. Um, Well, um, in the same way that you weren't forced into the workhouse, you weren't forced to stay there if you did go into the workhouse. You could leave any time you wanted, uh, was the theory. Um, um, In fact, you couldn't just waltz out the door Anytime you want, because if you left a workhouse site wearing your workhouse clothing without permission, uh, you were stealing workhouse property. Yeah. Uh, so there was quite a, a sort of subtle control over people's uh, movements, uh, and if you if you did, you know, if you did were guilty of that, you could get a month's hard labour. Um, so it was quite sort of um, you know uh, a, a useful way of controlling. You had to give notice of your intention to discharge yourself. Is kind of probably how you would phrase it um, in a formal way. Um, typically, three hours notice. Uh, so that gave the uh, workhouse master or matron time to go and uh, dig out your clothing, uh, do the necessary paperwork. Uh, and you would then be re- reunited with your family if that was the case, and you would then um, go on your way. But it's essentially, you know, you could leave any time you wanted. Um, and in fact, some people uh, took full advantage of that. Uh, there was an interesting group of people known as the ins and outs, um, who treated the workhouse like a sort of free DOS house, really. Mm. They would you know, come in on a Monday, go through all the admission procedure, and by Wednesday, they'd be fed up with the place and they'd, they'd discharge themselves, you know, spend a couple of nights outside mm. somewhere, either you know, sleeping rough or it might be you know, a relative they could sponge on for a couple of days. You know, on, 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 on Friday morning, they'd be back on the workhouse sort of the doorstep again, um, going round and round. You know, and it eventually became such a problem for the workhouse uh, um, officials having to do all this admission procedure, discharge procedure, admission procedure, discharge procedure, uh, they actually... They actually got uh, the power to detain people. Um, it's one of the few. It's the, one of the few instances where you, the, the workhouse could detain people if they discharged themselves, uh, you know, uh, re- uh, recently and come back straight in again. Um, but so, but generally, uh, I say you, know, you can leave any time you wanted. How did you get interested in workhouses? What is what is the connection that led you to just have this amazing database? Mm. 
Well, I was doing my family history, believe it or not, and uh, sending off certificates. And I sent off for the death certificate of my great-great-grandfather, Timothy. Uh, Timothy Higginbottom, uh, his spellings sort of changed over the years. It's it sort of a various, uh, you know, times as, as, as you, know, you know, you know, they do. And um, it had his place of death as the Birmingham Workhouse Infirmary. I thought, ooh, workhouse in workhouse. Um, I vaguely heard of workhouses. I wonder what that's all about. So I, I looked around, and we're talking about oh, um, 1992 now. Uh, I mean, you know, quite a long time ago now, and um, th- there didn't seem to be very much uh, around actually. Um, uh, the only thing I could find there was a lovely book by a gentleman called Norman Longmate called The Workhouse. I'm a lovely book. And I thought, oh, okay. Um, but it didn't really, I mean, it's a very great, it's a great book, but it doesn't really go in much into sort of, uh, sort of what you might call the sort of family histories, so much kind of stuff, uh, or into the sort of buildings. Uh, and it kind of gave the impression that all the buildings were sort of long gone, you know, like, you know, Stonehenge almost, you know, you, it's, it's all the distant past. Um, and um, I kind of got, you know, looked around a bit more. When there was a lovely program on, um, I was off work one day and watching daytime TV, and there was this little half-hour documentary made by um, ooh, um, ATV, as it was in those days, about the Birmingham workhouse. I think they were about to knock it down, and they sneaked inside and done some filming and I, 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 I always wanted to see this again actually you know sort of as time has gone on and um that kind of got me more interested um the thing though that really took it may um you know, took it to a, a whole new level um was that in 1999 uh english heritage um or the national monuments record i think it was called then uh they were doing a a project uh, documenting old hospitals that were all being knocked down all over the country. And someone there um, sort of spotted that a lot of these old, these hospital buildings had originally been workhouses. And they, they actually spun off a really interesting project. Uh, and there was a book that uh, came out of this by a lady called Catherine Morrison. And it went, it, it, it kind of laid out the whole history of workhouses really from an architectural point of view, uh, but woven in with lots of other stuff, really going back to sort of, you know, um, 17th century, really, 1600s. Um, and it, in the back of this book, there was a list of every workhouse in the country and exactly, you know, it's kind of grid reference. And I thought, wow. Oh, and also you could go to the um, National Monuments Archives in Swindon and each of these places, they'd compiled a little little dossier that they could, uh, Kathy, Catherine Morrison and her colleagues had been round uh, a lot of these workhouses and you know taken pictures and um, uh, got the plans and written on the plans. You know, this used to be the mortuary or the dining hall or whatever. And suddenly, this brought this to life. You know, there are all these buildings, and a lot of them obviously still standing. And I thought, oh wow, I could actually go to places like Birmingham, I actually see the place where my great-great-grandfather ended up, um, is it, which is exactly what, uh, who do you think you are, and programmes like that, do they take you to the actual places? It brings it all to life. 
Um, so I started, um, you know, sort of with these lists of places, and I'm going to. Um, I used to go to Swindon to the archives, the English Heritage Archives, and um, every week order up about I don't know twenty of these dossiers. I mean, really, some of them were really thick. You know, it, it took me all day and on a Saturday. Uh, and uh, you know, I kind of got they got to know me. I used to be called the Workhouse Man. By sort of, oh, he's here again, the Workhouse Man. All this stuff, and um, go, and I started going going around the country, like you know they had, and um, in fact, some of, some of them they hadn't been to, and uh, it was just amazing. I say you could literally with these this stuff, you could stand stand in front of all the, these places and say, oh, that was the women's side, and that was you know the dining hall, and that was the you know, the refractory cell where they sort of st- stuff the um, the miscreants for a day or two, and it was just like living history. Um, and um, I thought, well, this is wonderful. And I was taking photos, and um, and, and, and uh, so I thought, because I worked in IT at the time, I thought, mm. oh, um, you know, workhouses were just uh, sorry, uh, websites were just starting to proliferate. Mm. I thought actually I could make a little workhouse um, website. So first of all, I, I did. Um, I was living in a place called Abingdon, um, which had a workhouse. In fact, when I was just getting going, I went to the local library in Abingdon and said, uh, what have you got on the workhouse? And they said, oh, the workhouse. Ooh. And they fished around and they brought out this press cutting of Christmas dinner in the <laughs> workhouse in 1883. And that was it. And I thought, you know, there was this enormous building, you know, uh, housed 300 people or thereabouts had been there for the best part of a century. And, you know, it's virtually unrecorded. They had books on the the abbey and the parish church and the railway, you know, the defunct railway and the um, the river and the, the pond. Anything you think of almost had been lovingly documented uh, apart from the workhouse. And I thought, oh, that's that's very strange um, why do you so, think that, i was going to say why do you think that was then peter do you think it was because people weren't that interested in the workhouse yes. at that time yeah in fact yeah if you mention this to people you know you, you're interested in the workhouse they say oh why on earth do you want to know about the workhouse mm. oh horrible places mm. no best forgotten um I always think it's a bit like showing an interest in the local, you know, uh, uh, um, VD clinic or something. They would say, <laughs> yeah. oh, my God, what, why on earth would you want to know about that place? You know, oh, gosh. Um, so um, I kind listen. of... Um, I research cemeteries, right? So I totally understand where you're coming from. <laughs> I get people all the time going to me, why, why, you know, why are you a historian of death? You know, yeah. who wants to know about death? Yes. yes. Yes, I think people just look at me like, as if I was a bit, you know, off up, off the wall, sort of. You mm. know, it's like showing. I say it's just really weird. How could you possibly be into this ooh, rather disgusting, you know, old thing? Anyway, so I thought, okay, well, I'll start off. I'll do a little web page about the Abingdon Workhouse, mm. and I've had, then I visited a few more in in, in the area, sort of Oxfordshire, Berkshire, and, and I thought, well, I, I could extend this to Oxfordshire. You know, have half a dozen web pages, and then it kind of, it kind of became a. I wouldn't say an obsession, but a passion. I think is the word. Um, so I, you know, went further and further afield, and eventually, I almost got the whole of England. And I thought, well, Wales, you know, be interesting. So I spent a couple of weekends going around Wales, uh, and then um, Scotland. Um, you know, they're a slightly different system. They're poor houses and in a slightly different administration. 
and then Ireland, of course. So I, eventually, over the years, they end up, you know, sort of really going the whole British Isles from Shetland down to Cornwall and west of Ireland over to East Anglia. And um, it kind of every time I came, I visited, found a new you know, new location visited. It was always a, a great pleasure to see this really interesting building looming up. You know that was possibly uh, a hospital annex or so you know it'd been turned into something most of the people there had no idea what it you know had once been and um you know and actually i thought well you know let's put this all together uh into a website and um that, that's kind of really how it grew it kind of grew, you know grew like like topsy as they say um and uh, then it moved on to the older, the more the more historical little parish workhouses, uh, not so well sort of documented, a bit hard to sort of track down quite often. Um, so, so that's it, really. <laughs> how many, I don't know if you're going to know this, so how many yeah. workhouses have you now got on your website? Well, the, oh, I, I don't know. Well, in the Victorian era, there were sort of 600 nod. Mm. Uh, the, you know, what we call the, what we think of as the big Victorian workhouse. Yeah. Prior to that, were, there were hundreds and hundreds of little parish mm. workhouses. Um, yeah, I, I mean, some of those you, you know, you you just know they existed. That's all you know oh. is that there once was you know um, a parish house in Little Fiddleton or whatever. Uh, sometimes you know a bit more, you know, when it was opened, or um, you know, in some cases it may still be there, and you can go and see it. Sometimes they even have a little plaque on the wall, um, or you know, a kind of memorial stone, um, if it, you know, when it was set up. If um, for some reason, you know, that's that's been put into place. Um, you know, I, I was certainly a couple of thousand, I suppose. Easy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if but, you um, haven't, by the way, checked out Peter's website, Peter's website, workhouses.org.uk, isn't it, Peter, I think it is? That's exactly right, yeah. .org.uk. Honestly, you must check it out. I know for a fact, if you have an ancestor that has been in a workhouse, I guarantee you have been on Peter's website. You may not have known it was Peter's website. <laughs> Let me tell you, you have been on Peter's website. It is so full, packed full of information about workhouses. Wow. There's even a quiz on there. I, I will wrap it up now because I've noticed that we're just getting towards the hour mark. But I do have uh, my final question, and it's the question that I ask all my guests when they come on the <laughs> show, Peter. Right. If you could invite somebody around for dinner tonight either yes. somebody from your family history or somebody you've researched, uh, who would it be and why? And what would you cook? Gosh, that's an interesting question. Um, I suppose uh, one character um, who always kind of leaps out at, at me in, in the history, which um, I actually did uh, some work on recently for another kind of uh, project, uh, was, was Dr. Joseph Rogers. Um, who was the medical officer of the, um, the Strand Workhouse on Cleveland Street in London? Uh, this, in fact, this did that particular one is got a strong association with Charles Dickens, who lived you know, about five doors away uh, for part of his his youth, and it's often said that's the workhouse it was based on. But Joseph Rogers, uh, first of all, um, well, first of all, he's got one of the, the few um, detailed accounts of uh, workhouse experiences in his autobiography. Uh, which was published after he died, actually. But um, and his encounter with the, the battles with the workhouse master 
and the Board of Guardians trying to improve the place. When he arrived, um, it was a terrible state. We had, as, as I mentioned, drunken nurses. Um, they had carpet beating going on outside the windows of, of all the wards, you know, creating dust, dust and noise. There was a huge laundry in the basement producing lots of smells and stuff, you know. He, um, and he was very instrumental, actually, in these uh, changes in the 1860s I mentioned about improving uh, the life of workhouse inmates. And his battles with uh, the workhouse master, uh, really a, um, ex- an awful ex-policeman called George Catch, makes fascinating readings. I'd love to sort of <laughs> hear more about that. Uh, what I'd cook him? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, I suppose I'm vegetarian, actually, so I'm not sure what um, <laughs> uh, he, he might find. I'd probably dig up my workhouse cookbook and say, you know, actually, um, um, you know, try some of these more interesting things. Uh, after the, the the diet improved enormously in the early 1900s, um, so I, um, there's there's a, a pudding I've made a couple of times as a demonstration thing called golden pudding, which is like a sort of a, a sponge pudding uh, flavored with ginger and uh, golden syrup and treacle, and uh, you know we could we could relive the, the sort of the, the workhouse experience with a, a you know a plateful of golden pudding peter thank you so much uh peter higginbottom thank you so much for coming on the podcast um honestly i am you know one of your biggest fans as i've already mentioned oh, thank you michaela that's it's been you know um as you know, I love talking about the workhouses, and oh, you're, um, I see you've got one of my books to uh, mention. One thing I, I always have to say is that um, the the books always contain more that's on the website. People always think it's just the book on mm-hmm. the website, but there's always a lot more research uh, in the books than uh, is on the website. So I remember many years ago you wrote a grim al- a grim or an almanac sorry of the workhouse and i wrote oh, yes. a grim almanac of manchester and they're actually in the same series so. <laughs> yeah. that was yeah. oh, full of interesting tales um i always remember the one about the lady who in, in the bed in the workhouse um who was being regularly brought uh, sort of um, supplies of laudanum and opium by you know people uh, sneaking it and just smuggling it into the workhouse and again, it's, it's interesting. Um, just uh, you know, one thing I, I know we've passed our time. But I just want to say anyway, there's the, the thing I would always, always try and remind people is that workhouse inmates were a community of living people who used to kind of try and undercut the system and, and you know, break the rules. And, and you know, it's a fascinating um, sort of community to look at, actually. And again, smuggling illicit goods into the workhouse was one of the sort of things they got up to and all sorts of, you know, men and women sneaking over the wall at midnight to have little assignations and oh gosh oh you know it would make a wonderful soap opera i know i must admit you've you've sold it really well peter i think you've had my time again <laughs> you stick me in the workhouse <laughs> if you do want to see our episode of the great british dig at Osborne street workhouse um i will check the new series of the great british dig is on now if you, in fact, tell a lie, it's actually just finished. Uh, but if you've missed it, I know you can get it on Channel 4's version of, you know, version of Catch Up. I will see if the Osbestry one is still available. And if it is, I'll put a link to it in the description below. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Apologies that this week's podcast is slightly late. I normally try and get them out on a Monday, but this was most definitely worth the wait. Uh, Thank you very much for listening, folks, and I shall see you again next week.